Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Athletic. The race is on, and with F1's latest triple header done and dusted, there's still plenty of questions to be answered about Mercedes form, the rise of McLaren, the sprint race conundrum, and what we've learned about 2024 prospects and Aston Martin's fall and rise. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer a plethora of questions from our listeners are Scott Mitchell-Mal and Josh Suttill. Well, Josh, welcome back. We haven't had you on for a bit. Last time you were here, I think you were playing the role of Scott Mitchell-Mal, so now you're getting to be back alongside him. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, isn't it, to see Scott? That's said with great commitment and warmth and sincerity. How do you feel about that, Scott? Do you feel welcome? Uh, he said that with the same kind of uh, warmth and sincerity as you welcomed me back on the, the podcast with a couple of weeks ago, Ed. So I'm not hugely surprised. What what I am interested to see is, obviously, we know that we know that I work extremely well on this podcast and we know that Josh works extremely well on this podcast, but... I want to see if we can work well together again. This is like the this is the classic Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard. Can they play in the same midfield debate? And it turns out that Paul Scholes is better than both of you, so uh, that's the real answer. I like to feel I'm the Paul Scholes in this particular setup. How do you feel about that? No, not in the slightest. I feel like a Paul Scholes character in this scenario. In the context I just that's more like a like a is it a, is it? I don't really want to say it to, because his ego is going to be as big as his teeth. But maybe is that a Ben Anderson kind of role? Yeah, it could be. Understated, comes in, does an amazing job, and there will be people out there who genuinely think he's better than the regulars. Yeah, it could be. Could be. Um, I like the fact we're making good contemporary references, though, on, on football um, in order to, to get everyone to understand the podcast. That uh, probably says something what about... What would the modern equivalent be, then, for England? It would be, I guess, can you have Jude Bellingham and... Who else? It, it would be Bellingham and someone, wouldn't it? But this is a this is the wrong podcast for this conversation. I apologise. Yeah, I think you've digressed massively there into uh, yeah, interesting topic, Jude Bellingham, but probably not one for uh, for this particular one. But Josh is quite young, so perhaps he's the Jude Bellingham of the uh, of the podcast, and he's going to be putting us all uh, into obsolescence shortly with his uh, with his brilliance. Is that your plan, Josh? Uh, no, I, I have no plans. I, I quite enjoy listening to you two having all this kind of interesting stuff week in, week out, and occasionally popping in. It's kind of be a super sub, just come on for a little bit and yeah, sit on the bench the rest of the time watching you two do your best. That's what we call a good squad player, a good influence in the dressing room. So uh, yeah, let's set aside this football uh, analogies now and actually get on with what we're talking about. Because as we mentioned in our Brazilian Grand Prix episode, we did have some problems with accessing the questions from the race members club. Thankfully, we have now fixed that. So as promised, we're going to tackle them in this episode. Thanks to everyone who sent their questions in. Apologies for the delay. And also to those of you who asked some questions we've already answered in that podcast. So we won't address those here, but we did read them all. And uh, some of them were very, very appropriate but uh, yeah we've already talked about them unfortunately because they were so key to the race but we'll start off with a few quick detail questions from the Brazilian Grand Prix that we didn't touch on in the last episode Scott you're first up a question from JR who says Daniel Ricciardo and Oscar Piastri pitted before the red flag why couldn't they rejoin the grid for the restart they were driving around a lap behind which was completely useless what's the logic behind this rule so it's not one specific rule as such. I think it's just a combination of the way that F1 rules are, F1's rules are, that facilitated this. Because um, I, there may well have been another example since this, but I could remember in Azerbaijan in 2021 when there was a red flag and a standing restart and Nikita Mazepin was a lap behind at the time. He got rolled from the back of the, the, the fast lane in the pit lane to the front, released before everybody else, did a, did a, did his outlap, came back into the pits, rejoined the queue at the back, 
having regained his lap, then the whole field was released from the pit lane so that they could make their way round to the grid for the start. The reason that that didn't apply to Ricardo and Piastri here is that they weren't in the fast lane at the time of the red flag. They'd already been brought back into the pits, had gone back into their garages, ostensibly to retire, although there was all, certainly for Alpha Tauri, there was already a bit of discussion of, well, maybe we maybe there'll be a red flag and we can re- re- repair the car and, and send you back out and basically when you're in the garage at the time of a stoppage you have to rejoin the the race basically you can you can leave the pits with every everybody else but you have to go at the back of the queue and then you have to come back into the pits at the end and take the race start from the pit lane so there is a specific set of rules to follow when you're not in the fast lane at the time of the red flag so any kind of precedent or mechanism that could have been used to get them their lap back didn't apply because they had a different set of rules that they needed to follow that precluded it it's a strange one he was certainly very angry about it wasn't he but uh i guess you've got to have some kind of uh some kind of rules for that sort of thing well it could be it, it can be fixed though because i think one of the things that made it particularly hard to swallow in this scenario is that when they they fell a lap down behind like under the red flag because if you remember so the field came through the pit lane at the end of lap one and Ricardo and Piastri went into their garages. Then the field went out of the pit lane, because it was only a safety car at that point, did half of lap two, and then the red flag came out. So, But then they came back into the pits, and in coming back into the pits and going to the end of the pit lane, they crossed the start-finish line, finishing lap two, which put Piastri and Ricardo a lap down. But they finished lap two under red flag conditions. There wasn't, do you know, they weren't racing at lap two. So I feel like in this scenario... There has there has to be a way in this scenario to be like, okay, look, you didn't technically fall a lap down because technically lap two wasn't completed under green flag conditions or it wasn't completed under green flag conditions. Maybe we can do something different for the future. That, Ricardo had a quite extreme example, didn't he? Which was if you inverted what happened on the opening lap and say 15 cars got caught up in it and caught up in it and five um, persevered. What would, you, what would you have done then? Would you have allowed five cars to take the restart and have 15 start in the pit lane a lap down? Well, actually, I'm inclined to say, Daniel, that yeah, F1's a stickler for, the FIA's a stickler for the rules and I suspect that would happen. But I agree that maybe there is a different compromise to try and invoke into the sporting regulations in the future to avoid an exact repeat. Yeah, and I imagine that uh, if Daniel Ricciardo was one of, say, five hypothetical cars that was a lap up, and he was going to be starting near the front. I'm sure he'd feel slightly differently. But yeah, yeah, in the past, that would have been a completely fresh restart, wouldn't it? Rather than a, a continuation of the race. But maybe there's something they can look at there. But yeah, rules is rules. Josh, a question from Hugh Douglas, who says, the long middle stints by the top two make me wonder if a one-stop would have been workable for anyone, especially given that the lap one red flag gave half the field an opportunity to run all medium to the end. Yeah, Norris did the longest stint in the race on the mediums. That was for 32 laps. And Piastri did 28 laps on the soft. So the numbers aren't quite adding up there. Could they have extended those stints potentially? But there's just no way that the, the two-stop would have been faster than the one-stop. Track position isn't all that important in Interlagos, especially when there's a tyre offset. So yeah, I think the reason why no teams went for the one-stop was simply because just in no scenario was it going to be faster than the two-stop. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where you would have been slower probably if you'd done a one-stop. A question now I'll take from Villa Nikari, who says, why was qualifying delayed? Was there some metal on the track? How can something like that happen in the greatest show in motorsport? Well, yeah, they were cleaning up the track. There was a Porsche race, if memory serves, just before it, and there was quite a big crash at the bottom of the Senna S. So there was some clearing up, I think, after that, and it had been pointed out that earlier in... Um, in free practice, there had been some things on the track and obviously Alonso had a puncher and things like that. So I think they just thought, better be safe than sorry. Let's make absolutely sure of it. And I think, yeah, how can that happen? Well, I think this was taking the safe option to make sure that it was clean. The tracks do get used by other things and yeah, you can have problems like that. So probably sensible they avoided that because if you have a, a sudden loss of uh, loss of tyre pressure and then off, it can be quite a big accident. Ideally shouldn't happen. But, yeah, just one of those things and perhaps something for Interlagos to look out for next year, tidy up the track a bit more. Scott, a question for you now from Dave Smith, who says, I usually have to watch the races on catch-up late on Sunday nights, so it's a nice surprise that I can submit a belated question. What's your best guess as to how Charles Leclerc's race would have panned out without his mechanical issue? Would the newer soft tyres saved from the sprint have allowed him to challenge the Astons or even Lando? 
I think he would have been in better shape than um, than Carlos Sainz was. Obviously, Sainz in the other Ferrari did manage to do the the whole Grand Prix. I think Leclerc was in a better place than Sainz over the weekend as a, as, as a whole. I think he was more competitive. He was the faster Ferrari. Uh, so I think a better result than Sainz achieved was on on the cards, or a better race was possible than Sainz had. And he obviously having that um, the having the tyres that he had meant in theory he'd have been able to be on the, on the attack against the cars that Dave mentions. But ultimately. Sainz was quite an anonymous um, sixth in this race, wasn't he? I think he was, what, a good 10 seconds or so behind the second Aston Martin and 15-odd seconds behind that. So, yeah, 15 or 16 seconds behind that Alonso Perez battle and a good, um, well, way over half a minute off of Norris. So I don't really see... Like, Leclerc, I suspect, fits somewhere into that gap, but I suspect it's closer to the Sainz end of that gap than the Norris end, which means... You know, with an ideal race running ahead of them the whole time, maybe he gets in ahead of Alonso and Perez. But I feel like I feel like the Ferrari was just was just objectively the the slower car of that of that group. So it would certainly have complicated Alonso's race. I feel like it would have had a more negative impact on Alonso's race than it would have guaranteed Leclerc a podium or something like that. Yeah, I think a lot would have depended on whether he was in clear air in the early stages as he hoped and able to carry on without too much trouble he was quicker than science but obviously that deficit is a bit different in the race compared to in qualifying let's move on now to sprints because inevitably we had some questions about that format given it's the <laughs> third sprint in four weeks it's a big talking point a lot of teams and drivers talking about that the first question josh for you from sue moorcroft he says do you feel there's a concerted effort amongst the teams and the tv media to whip up the enthusiasm for sprint weekends whether in the current format or an adjusted one that's the impression i've been getting this weekend i'm a diehard fan and watch every session but i know others who can't be bothered to understand which qualifying session they're being shown or which race and so give the whole sprint weekend a miss yeah, the issue over timing is completely valid. I think many people are confused, whether they're fans at home or, or even people at the circuit. Total Wolf expressed confusion about what you know session was going to be next to the weekend. So it's totally understandable. It needs to be a lot clearer and, and better communicated. And honestly, they, they simply can't change the format every single year or there's just going to be no kind of continuity and, and it's no clarity. And yeah, it, it's very understandable that the, the timing issue. In terms of the media and TV, you know, pushing a narrative for the sprint race at the end of the day tv is always gonna get people excited in the pre-race they're always gonna hype up what you're about to see because they want you to to keep watching they're not going to be all down and, and giving you reasons to to not keep watching yeah they're not going to say don't tune in are they exactly not say, <laughs> this is going to be rubbish awful. don't watch it <laughs> exactly that, that would be you know that, that's not what tv is there for and on the media side obviously there's no you know under the hand deals going on where we have to promote sprint races i think it's, it's clear that everyone has given you know their own opinions just like any fan there's people who support it people who don't people have all sorts of theories i think that's no real really no different to uh, to anybody watching at home, I think there's there's certainly no effort there. In the media, really, at the end of the day, and, and teams in general as well, they obviously everybody wants the the sport to succeed. But I don't think that's really been holding anybody back from giving opinions. Look at what some of the team bosses have been saying, and many of them have been openly critical of the sprint races. Some of them have supported them. I don't think that's really any different from fans at home. Plenty of fans support the sprint races. Plenty of fans think it's the worst thing in the world and and that's pretty much reflected across drivers teams and and the media i agree with what josh says that there are no underhand deals or anything like that but there is clearly an emphasis on a certain type of of messaging that i suspect f1 is well i know that f1 has been impressing this on certain stakeholders from the very start it just depends like that that message has changed from the beginning it was all about oh the you know that this is going to be a real sprint race the drivers are going to be pushing constantly like no more management this is going to be absolutely uh, flat out drivers will race anything do you remember ross braun saying that they'd race shopping carts in a supermarket parking lot if they could um and it's gradually shifted since then. So now the big emphasis is on, well, this is so much better than a practice session. Um, but I can't, I've lost count of the number of times you and I have talked about this, Ed. But no one is arguing that that's not the case. No, no one is sat there going, oh, I, you know, I just really wish I was watching FP2 instead of qualifying right now. Oh, I really wish I was watching FP3 instead of a you know sprint shootout, whatever. Like, no, no one is saying that a sprint race is less of an is worse for a grand prix weekend than an extra extra practice session but 
that doesn't mean that the current sprint format's good and it doesn't mean that this current sprint format can't be improved and I think that's what a lot of the criticism or focus is on it, it's that the way they've changed it makes things worse in certain ways it makes things lower stakes in certain ways and it's just about right if you're gonna have the sprint weekend what's the best way to do it that is a perfectly valid conversation to have and doesn't detract from the fact that yes it is better than watching a practice session i don't mind the sprints i think they're they're fine uh but they can definitely be better and the funny thing is you can actually believe both things are true that the sprint can be better but it's not a total disaster and if you're totally against the sprint, it's not like you can't talk about any positive element to do with the, the sprint as well. And you could extend that to say, what, why why don't we get rid of practice one? Because a sprint's clearly more exciting than that. Let's have two sprints and then a Grand Prix. Oh, don't give them any ideas. Thursday, I mean, look at media day. You know, I don't think a press conference is, that's a sprint's more interesting than that. Let's have a sprint on Thursday. And what about the rest of the week? And why don't we have more races? Because that's going to bring more fans. I reckon the viewership on a non-F1 weekend would be a lot higher if we put an F1 race on. And if we had a 30 race calendar, you know, the broadcasting figures, look at the broadcasting figures, <laughs> the difference would be, it's a, it's the same kind of argument. It always comes back to the quality of a quantity. Like, yes. I didn't realise that you'd invited Stefano Domenicali onto this podcast, Ed. <laughs> Tuesday sprints. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that that's the kind of the slippery slope you go down. If you just go, okay, what makes more money and what is more exciting, then we're always just going to end up with a scenario where, you know, you go just extreme end and then you're going to get the problem of people being burnt out and just seeing too much of a, too much racing. Yeah, I think the basic position, certainly my position, I think it's probably one you both share, is that if we accept that it's inevitable there will be some form of sprint format because they want to make sure there's something competitive on all three days and maximise the competitive sessions, the key is, is it being made the most of? And I think the feeling is that the sprint is just a watered-down, disconnected version of the rest of the weekend and needs to go a little bit more extreme if you're going to do it, if you accept that's inevitable with the way uh, the world is. A question now I'll take from Matthew Wright on sprint. He says, I enjoyed your recent podcast podcasts answering questions on the troublesome problem of sprint weekends. Could a viable option be to run a separate minor premiership-style series alongside the main championship, with the selected sprint weekends contributing to the crowning of the sprint king and the sprint champions? I'm just going to break through that question there, because Scott, you were working out the separate sprint championship. That's a good idea, isn't it? Having some kind of separate competition that is differentiated in some way, and it creates an interesting little table, doesn't it? I think it's sort of fine to... to it's fine to have alongside, but I, f- I don't know if I, I really don't know if I like or dislike the idea of having it separate, because when I worked it out, I worked out the points based on just if you just counted those points for a sprint championship this year, who'd have won it, and you'll be massively shocked to know it was Max Verstappen, but. I wasn't at the same time working out how it might impact things if you took those points away from the main championship, if that makes sense. And I got the impression that that's kind of where F1's going with this, right? If they have a separate sprint championship, it would be that the points only count towards that rather than get tallied for it, if that makes sense. I think if you have a separate sprint championship, that needs to go hand in hand with a much more differentiated format. So it's something very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Otherwise, you do get the problem of, you know, people struggle to care about who finishes second or third or fourth in, in the main championship. Why are people going to care who finishes second or third or fourth in a, a sprint championship, especially when the the winner is so clear? But it also tie, and, and it ties in with one of the problems we've talked about before, which is th- th- there's just nothing at stake beyond a certain number of positions in the current sprint the way it is. And, and I don't think I don't think a separate sprint championship goes any way to to addressing that really because you only have points on offer for a certain number of um of of positions but if you increase the number of positions or the number of points being paid out then you're basically making out like this the sprints as important as as the main race and the main championship so it it opens a does open a can of worms and i i don't it's not that i think the idea is without merit i just think it has to be handled really carefully otherwise i think you end up creating more and more problems and you it becomes a bit of a frankenstein's monster of a format and a championship and it would become skippable by putting it separate because people could say if i'm not interested in that format then i can fully skip all those sprint races because they have no impact on the main f1 championship that i'm here to watch and and that's a risk like you say they'd really have to get it right or i think that would be a a genuine risk but you can do it now you can do that now you can skip saturday now on a sprint weekend it doesn't make it like it has so little impact on the main championship itself because there are so few points available and it doesn't impact the grid anymore so what it, when you're watching the sprint weekend you could it, and that's what's mad to me is that you you can 
you can pull an entire day out of the, in out of the middle of a three day weekend, and it doesn't make a difference. If you watched on Friday and then watched on Sunday, the fact that you've missed out on the Saturday, you you, you lose very very little. You might lose a tiny bit of the thread of the weekend. There might be some stories that you miss. There might be some performance clues or, or relevancies in that way, but by and large, you could get away with it. Yeah, I think it sums up the fundamental problem with sprint races that it's not just about is one thing better than the other. It's quite a complicated equation and I don't think everyone's quite got there yet. But the main part of Matthew's question was actually, could sprint qualifying consist of a heat style one shot knockout round series determined by the result of Friday qualifying P1 VP2 P3 VP4 and so on hopefully it results in a mixed up grid and then the sprint race encourages flat out racing for a short distance perhaps even more so than currently I quite like the idea of a a very different qualifying format a series of little head-to-heads could be interesting almost sort of one lap mini races or head-to-head one lap qualifying things so yeah something like that it's an interesting idea what I would like to see is something that's just very, very different. That's one way you could differentiate it. And I think basically the more ideas that can be considered and the implications of which, the better. Formula E's obviously tried that head-to-head kind of qualifying. And I think the problem was it got quite tedious after a while. The first one is all exciting and new and you like seeing these matchups. But then you see it week in, week out. Or in this case, obviously, it'd be a, a few weekends a year and you kind of know what to expect already. And especially if you know who's fastest, you're just watching a more elongated, spaced out, less cars on track kind of qualifying. But yeah, f- for me, that one wouldn't work. But like you said, I think they obviously need to think outside the box. Otherwise, um, there's no point in having two qualifying sessions on the same weekend. I think one of the problems with the duels in Formula E would be the same problem that applies in Formula 1 is that the way that we we consume coverage now we've you've got a lot of data on the broadcast and a lot of people are watching with a second screen whether that's on live timing or or whatever like you can see through the lap whether someone's up or down and to me when you've got a head to head or something like that that takes away so much of the of the anticipation because you can see the time bleeding away through the lap if someone's losing it. Now, it can go the other way. It can create an absolutely mega, mega finish if you're getting down to the final mini sectors and then neck and neck. So it, it does work that way, but it can can go against you in a bad way as well. My, my, my personal preference is I agree with, with Ed and I like the... Um, I think like we've had a couple of times on members questions before I, I like the creativity and like effort that's gone into Matthew's um, specific format there I, I, I think that kind of going go in a very different way has to be the direction for the sprint in the long term when we were coming up with ideas of our own uh, fairly recently mine, mine was fairly um, straightforward as a weekend format but it was basically about having um uh i'd said sprint the sprint needed its own qualifying session uh and that should be one shot qualifying but the cars going out in uh championship order so that the first car on track for example is a max verstappen and the last car on track is a is a logan sergeant and that way theoretically most of the time sometimes it's not going to play out this way if you have like rain or or whatever it could go go the other way but the idea then is that you have the the fastest cars are a bit more vulnerable to track conditions and theoretically further down the grid. So you're almost cut, you're almost partly setting up a sort of half reverse grid style um, there anyway. But there is sort of an element of meritocracy about it still because you are getting them to go out there and go as fast as possible. I, I would much rather see the sprint adopt something like that than stick with what we're doing at the moment and just play around the edges. Next question for you, Scott, comes from JR who says, congratulations on the family, Scott. Thank you. I quite like the sprint races, yet the format should be altered. However, the Brazilian sprint really delivered. Again, this makes me wonder, would a sprint race also work at a track like Zandvoort? It's also short and narrow, an old school track with no track limits issues, a technical section with different lines possible. Would that work? Uh, I think the thing that Zandvoort is missing compared to Interlagos is one or two big overtaking opportunities. Zandvoort doesn't quite have that long, straight, big braking zone combination that Interlagos has into the centre S or the chance to then come back into to turn four. I think that is where um, where Zandvoort would lose out. I think where the sprint needs to be targeted is ultimately racetracks that promote good quality racing. I think Silverstone would be a, a really good track for, for, a, for, for a sprint race. Obviously, it's where the um, inaugural sprint was held if I'm remembering 2021 correctly or maybe there was one before then 
but I think no, Silverstone was the right one. Ed is nodding along. Um, so I think you, I think you just have to pick those those tracks. The only advantage to a, a track like Zandvoort would be is if if you implemented an element that had faster cars behind having to force the issue because faster cars having to force the issue on tracks that are difficult to overtake on that's the kind of racing that can be really really interesting to watch hi producer johnny here interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about roan a clothes brand we think you'd like i don't know about you but finding clothes you like can be tough sizes can vary from brand to brand and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and Gold Fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, next set of questions looks at the shake-up of the form book at Interlagos. That inevitably produced plenty of questions, both about performance in Brazil and the bigger picture. Joss, we'll start with you. Two questions I'll throw at you because they're on similar ground. One from Jeremy Husted saying, considering Mercedes' race pace in Brazil, the gap in Mexico and the illegal setup in Austin, should we believe that they truly are going in the right direction for next year? And from Joshua Fitzpatrick, is the dismal handling of the two Mercedes cars a sign that they still do not understand this generation of cars and that next year's car will likely not be competitive? Again. It's difficult to know what to read into for this year compared to next year because fundamentally, especially with Mercedes and Ferrari, it's going to be a completely different car next year. So how much you read of their progress with a very different car this year, you know, it's not always going to correlate to, to next year if they have a, an amazing winter or they've been having, because obviously the development for next year's car has been going on for, for ages. If, if that's going well, and obviously they could have a very good year and really what happens in these what's been happening in these last few races has very little relevance to to what's going to happen next year so it, it's a tricky one to say i mean there's all sorts of caveats i mean like in austin obviously with the disqualification i, I don't think that their ride height would have made a, a massive difference to the performance and equally in brazil it obviously looked like a bit of a uh, an anomaly so um it, it's difficult to say really um obviously on the kind of handling thing as well i mean i think again that's just to do with this year's cars platform and, and last year a completely different car next year where you could have very different characteristics and that will be the true test really of whether or not they understand these regulations i don't think anybody could really say with confidence the next year mercedes are going to be championship contenders equally i don't think anybody could say they've got no idea what these regulations mean and they're going to be in trouble next year i think it's one of those things you honestly cannot tell and you can make theories either way but I, I don't believe you can conclusively say either way and and the, and the handling is linked to that because they've made progress Hamilton obviously is is happy with the the rear end of the car and that's given him a big boost and has led to some of his his good performances and his slightly higher level than Russell over the some of the past few weekends but yeah it's a it's a tricky one to say either way Next up from Christopher Parrott, one I'll take, who asks, there's been an unusually high fluctuation in performance race to race for more or less every car in the field to a greater or lesser extent. What accounts for this? Is it the stage we're at on the rules cycle or is it a fundamental characteristic of the cars that we can expect to continue? Well, there's a number of things there. Firstly, the competitive spread is quite tight and obviously you get bigger adjustments in the order for 
smaller pace swings, if you see what I mean, because everything's just a bit more condensed, so it's easier to swap positions around. So that, that's one thing. And of course, F1 cars are all, always very track sensitive and condition sensitive, etc., etc. Getting the tyres working can create a big swing. And yeah, these cars, they're obviously profoundly ride height sensitive and getting them working through a wide range of corner speed profiles at different ride heights is the absolute key. Some teams are better than others. Some teams are better at certain ride heights and in certain corner speeds than others. Some get stretched and challenged when you've got a big range of corner speeds on a given day. Some are better at that. So I think cars move in and out of their sweet spot a little bit more with these particular sets of rules, obviously, effectively i know no, there, there was a degree of ground effect with the old cars but these are proper ground effect tunnel cars with the venturi tunnels in the floor so the addition almost of the ground to the equation has increased the complexity many fold so i think those are the various things that play and actually the field is very 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 tight in general you, you sort of see from red bull they don't often drop behind people because they've normally got a quite a comfortable advantage so they can bounce around in a window top of their window bottom of their window generally they're still at the front certainly on race pace singapore i guess was the outlier so that's i think what's happening here i think it will continue to a certain extent but i think teams are modifying the way they're targeting characteristics and performance and figures in simulation in order to give the best sort of average performance across a wide range of conditions better optimizing the car so we'll see a little bit less of that i think perhaps but if they're still tightly grouped then plus or minus one tenth of a second on a weekend can make you be the fourth fastest car rather than the second it's also the prominence of where that fluctuation is happening. As you said, Ed, Red Bull are clearly out in front and then just behind them is where you get all this fluctuation. If you look a few years back, it it was like that in the midfield to a certain extent where you had a different team being the strongest every single race or big um, swings from race to race, but you didn't really see it because Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari were more, well, they were miles clear compared to you know where they are now so i think that's also a factor because that then affects who's going to be on the podium and um who's going to be fighting for pole positions and stuff you look a few years ago it was just the same three teams um every weekend next question scott for you from lachlan babbage who says based on what we've seen how likely is it that mclaren can maintain this form next season have they pumped too much time and effort into closing the gap to red bull this year how much longer until we see lando norris on the top step uh, well, to deal with the last question first, I think it uh, pretty much depends on how long uh, Red Bull and Verstappen manage to maintain this level of form because I think I mentioned this on the Sunday podcast or I think it was on the podcast, maybe I mentioned it in another conversation, but uh, it, I think he'd have won by now in, in, in any other era because you wouldn't have had this level of domination when the car's been so good. In fact, I definitely said this on the post-race podcast. Um, so I, I think... Sooner rather than later, if McLaren keeps up this level of form, because at, at the rate that McLaren is p- performing uh, at the moment, when Red Bull drop the ball, which does happen every now and again, there's an increasing chance at the moment that Norris and McLaren will be first in line to pick up the pieces. So I think, I think that's possible if they maintain it. As for sort of the the chances of that being the case going into next season because obviously there aren't going to be too many more opportunities to do that this year in fact there are only two more opportunities to do that this year that depends on a little bit on how much McLaren's got left in in the locker I mean there is always possible that they develop this car for too long spent a bit too much money on this car and have given themselves a little less budget cap a little bit less development resource to put on next year's car which even if there is possibility to carry elements of the car over for next year especially aerodynamically you might still want more room to to push because there's still big big chunks of time to find. And McLaren might not have that as much as other teams if they've used too much of that resource this year. The one thing in their favour, or one thing in their favour, is that we know that the gains they've made this year are aerodynamic. There, there are some minor mechanical gains, but primarily their focus over the winter, I think, will be on the mechanical platform and probably a change in suspension in, in some way because you can't do that in season. So they have quite a fundamental element of their uh, of their car that can change in the off season which could unlock a great deal of performance whether that's on uh, in low speed corners as Norris has often complained about whether that's in the inherent handling traits of the car to make it easier to drive whether it's about using the tires better and also getting more pace out of older tires which is something McLaren have talked about these are all things that can come from a better mechanical platform so if they make the kind of step in that area as they have on the aero side, 
then yeah, they can maintain this form into next season. But it's just one of many, many unknowns and big question marks over next year that's really interesting. Next up, Josh, a question for you from Mark Martin. What is behind the Aston Martin resurgence? Has it completely switched back to its old specification or has it developed a better understanding of the new package? It seems to be a bit of a mix and match of their recent upgrades and some of the parts that they had for a, a very long time. I get the feeling that Aston itself is not 100% sure where this has come from. I mean, they were always clear throughout Austin and Mexico that they were very much experimental weekends, that they weren't particularly looking for direct performance on those weekends. It was all about R&D projects and learning about next year. Now they came to Brazil and obviously just focused on performance there and stopped it, stopped uh, the experiments off and, and suddenly the, the pace was there. Obviously the track car- characteristics also helped them. Obviously a bit of Alonso magic on, on Sunday, but yeah, c- clearly the, the, the level was higher. I think Aston has some clues, but there are still some question marks over you know where that loss of performance came from and, and it has come from i don't think we're going to go to vegas and abu dhabi and see them anywhere near the same level they were in brazil so there's still question marks over the upgrade and especially when they're mixing and matching so much i mean i know mike crack said that or uh, tom mccullough said that um you know mix and match it mix and matching is a usual thing for f1 teams to do but it seemed very much on the extreme end most times when a teams bring new upgrades they test them back to back in first practice and then in second practice both cars are running the upgrade and and, and that's it or maybe if they brought one you know maybe maybe they'll do that for one weekend but to do that for for two weekends and then to revert back to old specifications, I think there's no way you can argue that's normal. Clearly, there's, there's something there which isn't right with with some of the new upgrade pieces they've they've brought. But I'm interested to hear what what Scott thinks on this one, having done an article which you can read on the race as well on on Aston Martin. Where do you think their pace has come from, and and how do you see the kind of upgrade? I think it is the I think it is just giving themselves a, a better understanding of what spec of car they needed to have in in brazil and then also going into that weekend and treating it as a race weekend rather than a live test session i think ed do you remember we had a conversation around i feel like it was in the middle of the mexico weekend where sort of questioned whether aston was losing its way a little bit as a race team because things just felt a little bit messier and not quite as together and and that team has always been so so good as a race team, focused as a race team. And it feels like Brazil was back to leaning on those strengths again rather than getting lost in sort of a bit of a bigger mess. Yeah, I think there was an element of back to basics. It's right, how do we make this weekend right here, right now, as good as it possibly can be? And I think probably that's helped them redouble their efforts and their focus and make sure they they get things right. There's still things they need to understand, as Josh alluded to about the upgrades. But yeah, it shows that the car fundamentally can work pretty well question from david teague on a similar subject he said i recently listened to the bring back v10s podcast where they asked gary anderson questions he mentioned that temperature change at the track helped them diagnose problems with the 2000 jaguar does the temperature difference between friday and saturday give any insight to aston martin's performance issues i don't think the temperature difference there was a particularly significant factor although temperature massively can be it's hugely significant not just for the tires but the way the aero works and that kind of thing and yeah it can be massively significant but if you look at friday aston martin locked out the second row they were in the right place on track at the front of q3 both drivers did a decent job in those in the best of the conditions as the wind was starting to pick up and the car was fundamentally pretty quick i think if you look at what happened on sprint saturday in qualifying alonso obviously had that clash with um with Ocon, which didn't help matters. And then Stroll hit traffic as well in in sprint qualifying that meant he couldn't show his pace. So I think with a clean sprint qualifying, sprint shootout session, Aston Martin would have been not second row, but I think they'd have been much, much further up, uh, well in in the top 10. So I think that was the the first order thing. But obviously understanding the performance aero-wise with temperature variations always significant. So there'll be, there'll be some little factors and, and things there. But I think overall the Aston Martin performance issues are, are quite a wa- wide, broad thing and they, they cut out some of the complications, shall we say, that were causing problems to try and focus on the fundamentals. Which brings us to the next question, Scott, for you from Gareth Moore, who says, does this race suggest that Aston Martin are back now to a competitive standard that will continue for the rest of the season and into next season? Well, I think there's there's reason to be optimistic for the final two races because the one the one of the big things for me and I think for you as well Ed because we have talked about this is that um regardless of what exactly you think Aston Martin was was doing wrong 
for something for it to have changed as dramatically as it did in Brazil means that they have understood and addressed something. Obviously, we don't know exactly what it was that w- wasn't quite working with the upgrade or the car even before the the new floor ar- arrived. But this wasn't just all oh, Aston Martin back to its pre-upgrade form. This was Aston Martin as good as it's been at any point since the first eight races of of the season. So Aston must have understood something to to they they have to have understood and then addressed an issue to have done that suggests that they can therefore apply that to the last two races assuming of course that there isn't a reason why vegas or abu dhabi is just a a weakness in terms of track characteristics for that car which is entirely possible but i would say that while i would i would be surprised if they're on the podium again in the next couple of races but i wouldn't be surprised if they're better than they've been for the last few grand prix and that means aiming to get both cars into q3 and trying to snipe at the weakest of the the Mercs or Ferraris or McLarens or even the Red Bull, um, I would imagine both cars in Q3, both cars in the points, has to be their aim for the final two races. And honestly, for the last few weeks, I don't think you could say that that was a a concrete, achievable thing for Aston Martin to aim for. It would have been the, the highest of possibilities rather than something realistic. And something helping that resurgence is, I guess, Lance Stroll's kind of mini resurgence as well. At least it's got him... You know, firing a bit more on a, not maybe not all cylinders, but most cylinders. Uh, at least that's going to help because otherwise, as we saw previously, even when the car was competitive, especially in its, at points during the middle of the year, it was only Alonso who's able to maximise that. So at least it's you know looking like Stroll's having a, a bit of a turnaround over the last few rounds. Not just in Brazil, but there were plenty of signs across Austin and Mexico as well. So that will at least help them if. Indeed, this is a, a resurgence that's here to stay. We've got a few more driver-related questions coming up now. Josh, the first to you from Sean Murphy, who says, As a 42-year-old who is out of breath after a walk, I'm constantly in awe of my fellow 42-year-old Fernando Alonso, especially after a race like Brazil requiring such concentration on his part to stay out of Perez. In a front-running car, do you think he'll be able to sustain a championship challenge despite his age against younger drivers? And do you think this generation of cars are more or less forgiving for older drivers such as Alonso and Hamilton? This season is is absolutely evidence that Alonso could sustain a, a title challenge all year round. The missing link has always been that final qualifying pace, and and that would always be the biggest question mark. If you were to, I think as we've said before, if you were to put him in a Red Bull alongside Verstappen, you know where he would come unstuck is probably in that qualifying performances. He would probably usually be qualifying behind, and that would make winning a title against somebody like Verstappen difficult in the same team but obviously if he was in Aston Martin well if he stays in Aston Martin and Aston Martin were to produce a, a title winning car I think Alonso would absolutely be leading a title charge and doing so very well you could say that about many points in his career and I think it's no different now and it shows you know no signs of, of slowing down Ed I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the on the second part of that question for me I think the elite drivers could be successful in in pretty much any era. Of course, there are certain drivers who would be more successful in in certain cars. Sebastian Vettel's a a good example of that, but I get the feeling that, at least as far as Alonso's concerned, you put him in any car in any era, and I think he'd be a, a supreme talent. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. If anything, I'd say the current cars are a little bit tougher yeah for uh for drivers than the, than the previous generation a little bit different if you go way back to the uh the sprint race and refueling era they took a fair bit out of drivers but i still think they'd be able to uh to do it so yeah i think i think that yeah ultimately guys like alonso and hamilton would be doing it in in any type of car and his alonso's endurance probably makes him a good person to answer that question if he ever can as well because he's been across so many eras so he might have a good idea of that as well that's one we can throw at him shortly. Oscar Robledo now with some questions I'll take about Alonso as well. How old is too old for an F1 driver? Is Alonso unique or will other drivers follow his lead by continuing their careers into their 40s? Lewis Hamilton appears to have dispelled ideas of imminent retirement. Should this race like Spain 81 be held up as a paragon of virtuous defensive driving? And separately, how much damage has the race and not being able to get a podium done to Perez's chance of retaining the Red Bull seat? Well, how old is too old? Well, if you're performing you're okay. There's there's a saying that if you're good enough, you're old enough for young sports people when they play. The same applies to age. I think while there is at some point a physical drop-off, I think there's a long period as well where any imperceptible drop-off is compensated for by the vast experience. I don't see any drop-off really from Alonso and, and Hamilton. And I think 
it's a fundamental question of the desire and drive to keep putting yourself through it because it takes a lot to do this. You have to be fully focused. Yes, they're well paid and living a dream, etc., etc. But it takes a lot out of you, particularly for someone like Hamilton who has won seven world championships. <laughs> you know, he he could easily retire with his head held high, but he's still driven. So I think it is perfectly possible for drivers to carry on into their 40s yeah that there will be a drop-off I think you're uh, you're asking a bit too much if they're going to be getting into 50s and that kind of thing but we'll have to see how long uh, Alonso lasts but yeah certainly in the 40s I think it's the desire rather than fundamentally the physical side that hurts you sometimes drivers start to struggle a bit with vision and that kind of thing there can be specific things but that uh, depends on the individuals and yeah I think others will carry on into their 40s but Perhaps that's offset by the fact a lot of them are coming in a lot younger. But then again, Alonso came in very young as well. I think it will be seen as a as a great example of defensive driving. Very intelligently done by Fernando Alonso. A great masterclass in that. So yeah, I think it deserves to be remembered. It probably will be. It's just perhaps not Spain 81 when Villeneuve held up a queue of cars behind him because that was so avert an example of that. But yeah, this one I think deserves to go down. I I actually don't think that the race did a huge amount of damage to Perez. He was pretty brisk on the Interlagos weekend. His pace deficit to Verstappen was better. Yeah, ideally you'd want him to be beating Alonso. He probably should have done. But I actually think this was actually one of his better weekends in the back end of the season. So I don't think it's a particularly big blow fundamentally. Scott, a question for you now from Sam Mallinson who says, are Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly unique in being drivers who never seem to hold their hands up when they hold responsibility for a collision? I can't recall either, even in hindsight, holding their hands up. Is their presence at Alpine and not Mercedes or Red Bull respectively in some way a reflection of this mindset? Um, I think there's, uh, I think there is some truth to this. I think both drivers are quite, um, Quite, can be quite closed off they go into def, into a defensive mode kind of automatically when they're either if it's a collision or or you know m- mistake or or something like that uh Ocon the obvious example this weekend was that clash with with Alonso which was just to for him to try and argue that he didn't lose the car and that everyone was having snaps through there that weekend no, no one had one quite as aggressively as that and then hit hit another and hit another car. It wasn't just because Alonso was there. You know, Alonso uh, Ocon had lost control and was a big contributing factor to that. I think that there's something in their just something in their mindsets um, that makes them this way. It's then they're not like Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris, Oscar Piastri in terms of the the default position is to self self analyze and and be critical of themselves and and hold their hands up and I think it does hold them back I think it might well be part of why they're where they are rather than absolute total total elite drivers but um not to not to make out like we complain too much about drivers but Ed I think not saying who this was about but we say during the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend it's funny how it's never the it's never a an Alonso or a Verstappen or a Hamilton who reacts in in quite the same way. Yeah, there's, I think there's probably a mindset element there. I think it's quite important to do that. And sometimes drivers are right because it is external factors that get in the way. But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's something in the, the approach and psychology. But it can also have beneficial elements, that particular approach as well, in allowing them to do what they do. So complicated thing, driver psychology. I think to be fair, they're also probably involved in more midfield tangles than the likes of Leclerc and Norris. Leclerc and Norris are very happy to hold their hands up when they've made a mistake, but should that be a clash of another driver, would they be the same? I'm not sure. You know, I think there still could be similar elements of that definitely wasn't my fault from, you know, Verstappen, Norris, Leclerc, if they were in the midfield more and, and clashing more than the knock on and Gasly in, in their defence, I would I would say that. Next question from Joe Andrews for you, Josh. He says, how impressive was Lance Stroll's weekend? He's had perhaps his best weekend since the opening race. To out-qualify Alonso in essentially a one-lap shootout is quite impressive, even more so given his recent form. Yeah, as I said earlier, I thought that there was plenty of flashes that that Stroll was having a bit of a mini turnaround in the past couple of races. I thought he was quite impressive in in Austin and and he really showed that throughout the, the Brazil weekend. We know Stroll's quite good in those kind of mixed conditions sometimes. In those high-pressure laps, he does deliver something quite special, and I thought that's what we saw on Friday, and I thought he had a, a fairly decent Grand Prix as well. Was he as strong as Alonso? Definitely not. Was there still a big gap? Yes, there was, but I'm only judging it really on what we've seen from, from Stroll so far this season, and 
I thought he was pretty good. Is there perhaps also something in when that car's good? He obviously seems to be closer to Alonso, you know, potentially, because he, I think when his form was at its worst, it was when the car was at worst. His his relative form to Alonso was at its worst when, when the car was at its worst. So there could be something in there, but I'd certainly like it to see him string it together in the, the next couple of rounds as well. Otherwise, all he's proving is that, yes, on an occasional weekend, he can put something together and be close to Alonso. But can he do that consistently? That's That's always been another question. It's the same thing that applies to the job that Perez did in, in Brazil. I actually think that both drivers showed in Brazil that if they perform at this level, they've got nothing to worry about with regards to their future because this this level of performance still isn't a... It's not a title challenging or, you know, absolute elite level of um, of performance, but it's what... It's, it, it's certainly at least ticking the box of what those two teams need. With, yeah, Aston Martin needs a driver that can finish a, a race like that a few seconds uh, down the road from Alonso, qualify on the first two rows of the grid, you know, really take advantage of certain opportunities. That's what Stroll did in Brazil. There was there was there was nothing wrong. I mean he was he got bullied, made a bit of a mistake, however however you want to frame it, the first two the, the two starts weren't great. But his his pace at the weekend was was really good. His and his race performance was was very good. Race pace was very strong. Same same with Perez. I, I I didn't believe him with what he said in Friday qualifying where he talked about how close his lap was to Verstappen and he was going to be second um, until catching that yellow flag for Piastri because that wasn't true. I think he was nearly half a second down on Verstappen. So he might have been um, third on, maybe third on the grid, second row. But quali- up until that point, he, he his pace was really strong relative to Verstappen, just like it was in, in Mexico. And then the race performance was as it usually is with Checo, to be honest, was perfectly strong. I'm dis- I was disappointed that he lost out to Alonso, having just got back, having only just got in, in front to lose it again w- was fairly poor. But I do think that both drivers showed that, that that's the level they need to perform at and then there won't be any speculation. I think if you had a bank of results that were like they were in Brazil for both Stroll and Perez... I don't think there'd be any questions about their drives for, for next season. Longer term, maybe, because they're still probably not quite what those teams need in the long term. But certainly in the short term, you drive like that, you don't deserve to lose your lose your seat. Yeah, I didn't buy Brazil as a, a bad weekend for Perez or any kind of slant against him. I think him, OK, not being able to beat Alonso, it's what's that showing to Red Bull? OK, you know, he lost in a wheel-to-wheel, wheel-to-wheel fight, but he's shown so many times that he's actually quite effective in, in those kind of scenarios. So it, that really wasn't the point he had to prove. It was more, okay, he's got to show much better race pace and, and be quicker across the whole weekend. And, and that's definitely more of what he showed. So yeah, he shouldn't be too concerned by it. Next question I'll take from JK, who says, how did Daniel Ricciardo's pace in the race compare to Yuki Tsunoda's? Well, it was almost identical. They were on identical strategies, just Ricciardo was a lap down in terms of the tyres and the pit stop timing. And basically, if you take all the laps that are are kind of relatively normal race laps on pace, it's about 14 thousandths of a second difference between them, I think slightly in... uh, Sonoda's favour but yeah to all sense purposes it's the same pace obviously Sonoda had a perhaps slightly more complicated race but yeah it was near as makes no difference identical they were pretty closely matched I think over the weekend it's got a question from Chris Shaw is there any possibility that either of the Ferrari drivers will want to jump ship they don't seem to be getting the backing they deserve in terms of reliability strategy and operations for me they are the most complementary driver pairing at present with their talent and relationship I think they are a very good driver pairing. I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast that they, they might well be the best driver pairing on the grid in terms of how they tick every box together. Maybe not quite as uh, sparkling as uh, Hamilton Russell or maybe even as exciting as Norris Piastri, but they're, they're really strong across the board. In terms of whether they'd want to leave, at the moment, I doubt it. I, there, there's no there's no alternative for them. There's no project that probably entices them as much. There's no inkling of an opening in the next year or two. So for them, I think they just have to stick with where they are at the moment. And that, that's not a hard thing to do when it's Ferrari, obviously, but they will naturally be growing frustrated with the either performance inconsistencies or for Leclerc, you know, as he pointed out, why is he so unlucky? There are there are always things for Ferrari to, to get on top of. But when you're in an organisation like that, 
they are obviously well recompensed for their efforts and every weekend they've got a reasonable chance of potentially fighting for a podium and that's just where they are now and they've obviously got bigger ambitions than that as a team so I don't see any reason for them to be sort of waiting around sort of scratching at the exit door because it would be different if there was a Mercedes seat up for grabs or even you know Red Bull were cast in the net widely for, for anywhere, or even someone like Aston Martin was emphatically looking for new drivers. But where it is at the moment, I, I think where they are is, is is just where they have to accept being, so I can't see them looking around. The chances just seem to have d- decreased over the, the whole year. If we take Aston Martin and Audi to be two potential options, at least for, for science, really the quality of how they look as an attractive prospect is only really decreased over the last year so I can see both of them signing up to longer term deals before the start of the next season I think that seems to be the most logical um, next step we'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner Grammarly no matter what kind of work you do how you communicate is key all those emails reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done and Grammarly can help Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, and for our final set of questions, we've got some general ones. I've put it under the heading of any other business, so we're all over the place with these. Josh, a question from Timothy Junes, who says, I've never been there, but isn't Interlagos in Sao Paulo? As is Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal, Albert Park in Melbourne, Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez in Mexico City. Why, oh, why is Liberty Media pushing so much for street tracks? Accessibility is a joke of an excuse. Flight and hotel prices during an event are too high to make Las Vegas, Miami, and others accessible. So I guess this is asking whether street races are really needed to take the races to the people, given the location of some of these bigger facilities, should we say? Well, again, it's going to come down to what is the true motive of them. Is it to be as accessible to as many fans as possible? Is it to bring in people from that country or that region to the race? Ultimately, probably not, because plenty of them have been sellout crowds. Plenty of them have drummed up plenty of interest. So perhaps, you know, that's not number one on their list. Obviously, there's a whole heap of logistical reasons of where you can hold the race and many of those very classic tracks like Interlagos you know when they were built in the first place was under very different circumstances um to now it would be a lot harder to to kind of even put those tracks where they are now obviously if it was uh present day um but I think certainly on street tracks there's a valid point that more thought should be put into the layout I was been playing the Las Vegas track on the F1 game over the last couple of weeks and you know not really that impressed by the layout obviously they've got logistical challenges of where they can put the track but I would certainly like them to put a bit more thought into the layout because some of them are extremely bland and I think if people have rightly pointed out just seem a bit you know there's no there's no life all the life is happening sort of outside the track but actually on the track there seems to be such little kind of character and and emotion and i think you can have that from street tracks it's not like you have to have more traditional tracks to have that i think 
there's plenty more room for them to do something more interesting with street tracks and I think that's what we'll see a lot of complaints about um, this week, uh, next weekend with with Las Vegas. Next up is a question from Don Anderson. I'll take another week, another accident caused by the unprotected forward surface of the rear wheels. IndyCar has fixed this. What will it take for F1 to correct its most dangerous safety condition on the cars? I get that they are open wheel, but this continues to be the biggest safety blind spot in the sport. Is it a death that will be what it takes to get this fixed? Yeah, I presume that refers to the Ocon-Alonso clash in sprint qualifying. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's obviously a safety concern. You can have cars launched from that. It does contribute to accidents. I guess it's a fundamental question of where you want to set the risk level, if that's something you want to tackle. It's difficult because there is an element to which these are open wheelers, and if you've committed to that, do you want to persevere with that or do you make them fully closed wheelers? So I think that's a big discussion that needs to be had. I'd like to see some data about what they think about the safety implications of that kind of thing it's certainly worth looking and if there is an increased risk of a of a very serious accident that's beyond the acceptable level of risk it should be tackled but i think that's an ongoing thing certainly the indycar model is an interesting one and f1 has uh, considered this sort of thing but they seem pretty committed on retaining the open wheel uh, quality of of these cars but yeah it's it's an interesting uh, interesting question and one that will probably be revisited uh, over the years, I would imagine. It's got a question from Daniel Kay. Are the FIA prepared for a tight championship? The stewards and management team seems to be lost at the moment from track limits, racing standards, penalty application, and even general communication. The lack of consistency and coherence leave fans and occasionally commentary teams unable to guess what the outcome will be. I genuinely believe they're trying to improve their image, but always falling short. If we see another tight, potentially toxic championship fight, are you confident that the FIA will be able to withstand the pressure? It's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I think that the... The effort is there and the execution is generally there to to officiate and, and run the championship to the necessary standard. I, I have a few concerns about just uh, just li- little things in terms of the um, how robust different parts of the FIA actually are when it comes to things that 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 matter. I'm I'm a little bit worried that there's inconsistency sometimes in the way that we want certain rules to be applied. I think there's some interference from on high that if you got a toxic like if Ben Salayem had been in charge of the FIA for Abu Dhabi 2021, I I'm a bit I'm, I dread to think sort of what kind of interference there could have been there or pointless public comments being made about it, which I don't think helps. I think it just puts pressure on certain people and parts of the the organization and i just think just in general the resources the, the the resource has been shown in a few ways over the last couple of years to 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 be lacking whether it's on track limits policing for example i think that's something that's always uh, such a such a hotbed and you you look back at you look at certain things now and we've got a, a live issue at the moment by the time people listen to this it might have been resolved but Haas are obviously trying to review the results of the US Grand Prix because of a track limits thing that was done there and the reason that's an issue is because they basically didn't have the cctv camera either in the right place or a camera in the right place angled in the the right way and it meant that they couldn't please track limits on on that corner but what if what if we did have a super tight championship and one of the title protagonists was doing that lap after lap after lap and won the race because of it i know it's not necessarily that binary but that could happen and the way that we police things and make sure people are running to the rules means that someone would get away with that and that can happen at every single event in some way shape or form i don't think you'll ever be across everything i think the fia does a a lot of people in the fia do the best that they can in the circumstances that they're in but i think there are some shortcomings and while i don't i don't think the fia would like necessarily screw up the entire running of a championship battle or anything like that i think there is the potential at least for some flashpoints along the way Question for you, Josh, from Joy Graham. Can we look at the last few weekends with hope for 2024? The spread amongst the team seems to be reducing, or is this just the result of reduced practice sprint races messing with teams' preparations? You could argue it both ways. If you look at some of the winning gaps, they're pretty much the same as they were at the start of the season. Obviously in Brazil, Atlanta Norris pushing Max Verstappen very hard, so that was good to see. McLaren have clearly quite close to Red Bull, you know, tracks like Qatar and obviously in Singapore where Ferrari were able to win. So, 
yeah, there's some evidence that it is closing up a little bit, but then it comes down to, well, you know, Red Bull hasn't really developed their car nearly as much as some of the other teams this year, especially in the in the second half. Um, and obviously they're going to be having a, an evolution of their car, and I suspect will still be obviously plenty of performance to find over the, the winter. They're obviously not going to stand still. So, you know, I think there's there's plenty of optimism. As I said before, I think it's it's one of those things where you can't judge these last few races too much on, on how much the field is closing because somebody could be taking a substantial step over the winter and, and there'd be no evidence of that in the last few races. Um, look at Aston Martin's leap over last winter. You know, yes, Aston Martin had a, a much better second half of, of 2022, but nobody would have really predicted that the step they were going to take. So if you were being really optimistic, you could say, well, you know, that could happen for, for another team, a team that's starting off closer to Red Bull and, and there'd be some hope. So yes, let, let, let's stick with the optimism and that, that yeah, you, there's plenty to be optimistic about. And the final question I'll take from Peter Diamond. Given the fantastic Brazil races of memory, does today's race show just how bad the current generation cars are in wheel-to-wheel combat? Uh, I could give a really facetious answer and say the Perez-Alonso battle seemed pretty good, but I think that's a rather uh, unfair answer. Yeah, there wasn't a vast amount of overtaking at Brazil. I think there's quite a few factors at play here. There's elements of this generation of cars that aren't great for that. Obviously, they're quite big. They're quite unwieldy as well, heavy cars. Obviously, they're quite sensitive as well to uh, to the conditions and to the ride heights and all those sorts of things. You want to be careful with the way you treat the tyres. That's a very important factor because they're very prone to surface overheating. So it's very difficult for drivers to go at it hammer and tongs. And it's also a race where a lot of people, and I think this is something that generally teams have got a better understanding of now people are better at picking their battles in general i think which is why they'll seed positions that they're inevitably going to lose early in the race because you don't want to pointlessly battle for first place let's say in the case of lando norris if all it's going to do is prolong that battle but mean you lose more places etc so there's a number of things i don't think this generation of cars are brilliant for wheel-to-wheel combat at all but i think it's more three-dimensional than that and i think ultra fast aero dependent cars which f1 is committed to remaining will never be the absolute best at that full-on wheel-to-wheel combat i think there's other cars that are uh, better for that kind of thing well thanks very much to everyone for your questions thanks to josh and scott for their excellent answers head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there about formula one and the other stories from the world of motorsport check out our other podcasts including our indycar formula e and MotoGP podcast bring back v10s that tells classic f1 stories the race f1 tech show with gary anderson also have a look at our youtube channel well we're now going to be turning our attention to the build-up to the las vegas grand prix so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of formula one the athletic 